Blog Talk Radio. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the show. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and joining me is Tony Burroughs, who will discuss why can't you find your ancestors. Tony Burroughs is founder and CEO of the Center for Black Genealogy. He is an internationally known genealogist who taught genealogy at Chicago State University for 15 years. Burroughs researched Olympic gold medal sprint champion Michael Johnson's family history and consulted on the Smokey Robinson genealogy, the Oprah Winfrey genealogy, Reverend L. Sharpton Strong Thurman genealogy, African American Lives too. Who Do You Think You Are, The Real Family of Jesus, and consulted with Chicago Public Schools, New York Public Schools, Chicago City Colleges, and Ancestry.com. Many of you will know and probably have Tony's book, Black Roots, A Beginner's Guide to Tracing the African American Family Tree, which was published in 2001. So let me just give a warm welcome to Tony Burroughs to the show. Welcome, Tony. Thank you, Bernice. I'm so excited. Thank you, thank you, thank you for the invitation, and thank you for all the work that you do in promoting genealogy. You make a big contribution. Well, thank you so much. By the way, Tony, you do have the Tony Burroughs fan club listening to you tonight. (laughs) (laughs) And I just want to give a shout-out to all of the members of the Afro-American Historical and Genealogical Societies all over the country. We have all of these chapters listening in. So, Tony, let's just start with your beginning. Everybody has one of those stories. So what piqued your interest to get involved in genealogical research? Well, I was lucky. When I was in college, uh, we invited Alex Haley down to speak about Malcolm X since he had written the autobiography, and he talked about tracing his family history back to Africa, and I said, wow, that's fascinating, and uh, kind of forgot about it. And about six years later, I uh, read an article in the newspaper about it, and I had this flashback that Alex Haley was talking about it. And so the uh, newspaper article said that the Boy Scouts have a book 
to get a merit badge in doing genealogy. So I went uh, to the Boy Scout store. I got the book. said, interview your mom, your dad, your grandparents. And I got hooked on day one and just loved it ever <laughs> since. <laughs> wow. It is something yeah. that you can get hooked on really quickly, huh? <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Listening to all those old stories and looking at those old records. Gosh. You're right about that. You know, I have a grandmother that lived to be almost 106 years old. So can wow. you imagine Can you imagine growing up with her? Because she did not pass away until 2000. And oh, wow. I am so oh, wow. grateful that I listened to what she said because without yeah. her, I don't think I would have even considered genealogy. But yeah. let's talk about why aren't genealogists finding their ancestors? What, what do you think is going on? <laughs> well, there there are so many reasons. I mean, it's 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 really incredible. Um, and I guess it starts with even in in today's age, a lot of people start genealogy by getting online. Uh, they either go to Google and put in their ancestors' name or their family name, or they go to ancestry.com. And that's not how we start doing genealogy. So they miss a lot of the information that would help them when they're ready to go online. Um, So they should really interview their relatives first. And their relatives are going to give you a lot of information that's not on the Internet and a lot of information that it's going to help you once you go online, as well as, you know, they can go in their attics and their trunks and shoeboxes and find many records that are going to solve a lot of mysteries for them that they could not solve online. So that's kind of like the first thing. And back in the old days when we didn't have the internet, we didn't have that problem, you know. No, we didn't. But today, <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's a major problem. Another thing is that sometimes even when we talk to our relatives, our relatives give us the wrong names, and we don't realize, we may not realize we're researching the wrong name. Uh, for example, when I interviewed my grandmother, she told me that her aunt had married a Wilbur McKinney. And I looked for this aunt and uncle for years and never found him, and finally found out that his name wasn't Wilbur McKinney. His name was Wilmer, not Wilbur. And his last name wasn't McKinney, it was Kenner. So I'm looking at a completely wrong name, completely (laughs) different initial for the last name. And so we have to sometimes question those names we're getting from our family members, you know. Um, I also had a, a death certificate where my aunt listed her mother's maiden name wrong. And so fortunately, I was able to figure out her maiden name but it wasn't right on the death certificate. So oftentimes we get run around because we're not researching the real names that uh, our people really had. And then sometimes we run into problems and can't find our ancestors because we're looking under the name that we know them by, but that might not be the name that they went by. For example, my great-grandmother's name was Mary Burroughs. But when I find her on the census, she's listed under Mamie Burroughs. Well, Mamie is a nickname. Then I also found out that Molly is a nickname for Mary. So 
the name we're researching, is that a nickname or is it a given name? And if we don't know, we need to find out. And then even if we know it's a given name, we need to find out what all those nicknames for that name is. For example, if your ancestor was called Elizabeth or is called Liza, did you know that Liza and Elizabeth are the same name? But they also could be called Liz or Lizzie or Lisa or Libby or even Betty or Beth or Betsy or Bessie. All those are different nicknames for the name Elizabeth. Now, sometimes our parents would give uh, their child a nickname, say Betty, but not Elizabeth. But that's not always the case. And we don't know until we start looking in the records. So we have to be familiar with all those different nicknames. Um, I had a a great-great-grandmother named Fanny, and she was listed in every record under Fanny until I got to the cemetery, and her grave marker is listed under Francis. And so I realized that I may have missed her in a lot of records because I'm looking under Fanny instead of looking under Francis. So we need to really be aware of those nicknames. There's a, there's a book called Nicknames Past and Present, and it has dozens and dozens and dozens of nicknames. So you can go back and forth to look under a nickname or look under a given name, and you can see what the other ver- derivations are. The other thing is that a serious problem is that sometimes we have two entirely different surnames. Now, this is particularly uh, evident in African-Americans. Sometimes African-Americans could have one surname in 1870 on the census, but a completely different surname on the 1870 census. And so if you're not aware that they might have a different surname, then there's no way that you're going to find it. And this problem confounded me for about two decades. And it wasn't until I found out that they were listed under two different names where I found my great-grandfather. So you ask the question, well, why is that? 1870 is only five years after the Civil War. And many of the census takers knew those people in that community and knew them when they were enslaved and knew who the owner was that owned them. So sometimes they wrote down the surname of their former owner, which may or may not have been the surname that that formerly enslaved person used himself. And so it wasn't until 1880 that they could declare their own surname that they used. So they would have their declared name on 1880, but in 1870 it might be the surname of their former owner. Now, I found out that this could also happen with people in the white community. So if they lived in what we would call an extended family household, or you might say it's a a multifamily household where you might have brothers and sisters and and grandparents all living in one family, when the census taker came around, he asked who was the head of the family. So he wrote that person's surname down, and then everybody in that household might have been listed as that same surname even though they, in fact, had different surnames because they had different families within there. And so I've found that that happened on, on, on several different occasions. So the names can be very, very tricky, as well as middle names. We really need to know what middle names our ancestors had. My grandfather's name was Asa Morris Burroughs. I found him on a census sometimes as Asa Burroughs, but I found him on one census as Morris Burroughs under his nickname. 
And so do we often think about the fact that we might be missing them because we're not looking under the middle name? And then even sometimes they were listed under their initials. Like my grandfather, his name was Asa Morris Burroughs, but every document he signed was A.M. Burroughs. He used his initials. So if we don't find our ancestors in the records, do we look under their initials? Do we know their initials? Do we know the initial for the middle name? Because sometimes they're listed under just their first initial, like J. Dumas, or they might be listed under J.M. Dumas. So we need to look for those different initials if we don't find them under their actual given name. And then sometimes there's no name at all on the census. Like I found my father once, and he was listed under no name infant because he was a baby, you know. So if you would look for him under his first name, you wouldn't find it. Never even thinking, should I look under infant burrows? And that's how some infants are listed. Or sometimes the census taker would come to a household, the family wouldn't be there, they knock on the door next door, and they say, hey, do you live next door? Oh, yeah, that's Mr. Williams. Well, do you know his first name? No, we just call him Mr. Williams as Mr. Williams. Now, Williams is a terrible name to research if you've only got a last name. But sometimes <laughs> it certainly is. that's what you're faced with, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it can be really, really challenging, you know. Uh, so just dealing with names itself, and, and in genealogy, we're really dependent on names. So sometimes we have to think about some different ways of searching, like only under the last name or the last name and initial or combining the location, you know, with the um, uh, surname or thinking about other people that lived in the household and the family and searching for the kids instead of the parents all different kinds of, of ways we have to search. And then other well, times... Well, there's another question I want to just throw out to sure. you, Tony, and you probably will say this, but sometimes people get hooked up on the spelling. For example, yes. if someone's yes. last name is Cook, C-O-O-K, but they find the name <laughs> spelled C-O-O-K-E, well, they may say, well, mm-hmm. oh, it's not the same Cook because we don't have an E at the end of our <laughs> name. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, that that happens a lot. Uh, when you're just beginning, you don't realize that when you go back into history, people spelled phonetically like the name sounded. So you can find all kinds of spelling variations for the first name as well as the last name. Um, there was a researcher in Chicago and he couldn't find his ancestors in the records. He looked in the Civil War, looked under the Freedmen's Bureau, a lot of other records, couldn't find them anywhere. I found his ancestors in so many records, all throughout the Civil War, all throughout the Freedmen's Bank. And what happened was he spelled the name one way, but in the records I found those six different ways. And mm-hmm. so all those other five ways he never found. So we um, we have to be aware of that, you know. Unfortunately, some people, you know, they get this hard line thinking, well, my family never spelled it that way, or, or, or the black spelled it this way and the white spelled it the other way, you know. Um, so we just have to keep a more open mind when we're looking at those names. And, Tony, what about age? 
Some people get hooked up on, well, in 1870, he was 55, but it's 1880, and he's 70. Something's wrong here. He shouldn't be 70. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's that's kind of funny. Um, What we have to think about is, see, we're used to having a birth certificate and having birthdays, and so we celebrate our birthday, and we know when it is, um, and we know what year was born, we were born. Uh, but you have to think about when you're looking at records, sometimes the ages are different for many, many different reasons. One, again, when the census taker came by, you might not have been home, or mm-hmm. there might have been a child at home and not an adult. You know, so those ages could be off. What we have to keep in mind is that we can very rarely prove a fact through one document. So we normally have to get multiple documents to prove a fact. Now, in census records, you can look at six or seven different census records, and each one might have a different age on it. Mm -hmm. So what we have to do is try to figure out, well, what is the most correct age or what is the real age? And that is something that genealogists will encounter in many situations, um, what we call conflicts. And when we have a conflict, we just cannot just dismiss it. We have to resolve that conflict. So, like I've got a grandfather. I've got five different dates of birth for him, five different dates of birth for one guy. So how do you resolve that conflict? Well, Basically, what you do is you put together what we call a discrepancy chart. And so this is a chart which shows, say, the ages of this individual and where you got that information from. What is the source? And we always have to track our sources. And again, when we're beginning, normally we're not told that we have to track our sources, but it's very, very important, particularly when we're resolving conflicts. So we would record on on that um, discrepancy chart the age, the source, and the date of when that source was created. The rule of thumb is we want to find a primary record. The primary record is a record created at the time the event occurred, hopefully by someone who had direct knowledge of that event. In this case, we're talking about a birth certificate when that baby was born but we know that birth certificates were not always created. So what do you do? Normally, the closest record to the time an event occurred, hopefully by someone who had knowledge of that event, is the most accurate record. And the further you get away from that event, the least accurate that record tends to become. So when you look at an obituary when you look at a grave marker, when you look at a cemetery record, those are the furthest records away from when a person was born, and those tend to be the least accurate. So you want to put a list of all your sources and put it in chronologically and see what the closest sources are and see if they're consistent with any other records. Interesting that you asked that question because I wrote an article on this for the National Geological Society Quarterly. Um, It's in the uh, December issue. It's a lead article about one of my ancestors called Old Uncle Davy. 
And old Uncle Davey, they said he lived to be over 100 years old. And it had all these different ages, and nobody that I talked to knew exactly how old he was. So I went on a mission looking at many, many different records to see if I could figure out how old he actually was when he died. So if people want to look at that, it's in the December issue of the National Genealogical, Genealogical Society Quarterly on Old Uncle Davey. So let's talk about, I mean, totally thinking out of the box. Because right okay. now, I mean, you, you, you're talking about, let's, let's say these are just some traditional things. We, we go and we talk to our family members. We get information from them. And then from there we look into the census, as you mentioned, and then some of the vital records. But suppose we need to even think totally different. What would you recommend? Well, the first thing I'd recommend is letting people know that when you search online, which everybody is doing now, that that is only the tip of the iceberg, that you're not going to be able to solve all your problems online. The majority of records are offline. Now, yeah, that's difficult to do during the pandemic, you know, but at least people need to be prepared for that, and they can do some online research to let them know where they can search offline. Give you an example. You might have seen just recently where the National Archives announced that they're going to be closing um, the regional branch in Seattle, Washington. The National Archives is, is headquartered in Washington, D.C., the library of the federal government, but they have 13 regional branches around the United States. There's one in Chicago, there's one in Philly, there's one in New York, there's one in Seattle, there's two in California, there's one outside Atlanta, there's one in Kansas, and so there's 13 of them around the country now, and they have unique records that don't exist in any other archive. They also have some of the microfilm that's available at all the archives. But let's just look at the Seattle region for a minute. National Archives just announced that they're going to be closing that region within the next four years. And so a lot of the Native American Indians in that region are very upset about that because a lot of their records are in that region and exist nowhere else. These are manuscript original records. Now, so... People have suggested, well, why don't you just digitize the records? You've got four years, just digitize the records. Won't be any problem. Well, that archive has 56,000 cubic feet of records, which they estimate are about 110, 112 million pages of documents. Less than 1% of that has been digitized. So they did an analysis on what it would take to digitize those records at this one regional archive. They said if one person operated a scanner eight hours a day, five days a week, 52 weeks a year, he could scan about 500,000 documents. Now, if you took 10 people to do that, because, again, we're talking about 112 million pages. If you took 10 scanners that work eight hours a day, five days a week, 52 weeks a year, that scanning would take 23 years at a minimum, and that's only the scanning time. It's not the preparation time to get the documents in order to scan them. 
And if we talk, and that's just one region, if we talk about the National Archives as a whole, they have 12 billion documents. So when you think about what's online versus not online, even though there's millions of documents online, that's only the tip of the iceberg. And so many of our genealogical problems are going to be solved at regional archives, at local county courthouses, at local public libraries, at local museums, at local historical societies, at local churches, at local cemeteries, in places where you have to get offline and go out there and search these things out. And many of your problems will only be solved using those additional resources. So that's that's the first thing I, I would say in thinking out of the box, because most people, when they think about research, they just think about searching online. Mm-hmm. And you were right. So you want to catch that? <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> He's going to vote. You know when you know when we start talking, we get all excited and then people start calling us and they want to talk, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. But exactly. going local, going local will be the place where most people should aspire to go. <laughs> because yeah. as you said, everything is not online. Right, right, right. Uh, another area when I'm thinking about it where people should think out of the box, um, a lot of people, particularly if they've just started within the last few years, uh, they primarily use Ancestry.com. And I'm not bashing Ancestry.com. I use Ancestry.com every day. I mean, I love it. It's a great resource. But there's limitations in Ancestry.com, and people need to be aware of the limitations. A lot of people now keep their, quote, quote, family trees on Ancestry.com or on some other Internet database. And that's good because you have direct access to it. It's easy. When you walk around to the club, you can show your people your tree. And this and the other, <laughs> someone asks you a question, you can look the tree up, you know. But those trees are very, very limited. All they can do is show you who's related to someone else, show you a picture of them, and they can show a little timeline that shows um, uh, the different events that happened in their life. But if you get off of online and you go to a genealogy software program, you not only can develop a tree, you can develop a family group sheet, a pedigree chart, a descendant chart, a narrative report. You can do so many other things at Ancestry.com Trees cannot do. And when you think about analyzing your genealogy, the main tool for analyzing your genealogy is the family group sheet. And a lot of people don't even know what a family group sheet is because you can't go to Ancestry and pull up a family group sheet. Now, you can pull up a blank one, but you can't pull up one with your, your tree on it or your, your genealogy information. And so what is a family group sheet? A family group sheet shows the father, the mother, all the children, and the dates and places of birth, marriage, and death for the mother, the father, and all the children. But the other thing it does is it allows you to footnote each and every fact on that family group sheet so you know where you got that information. And again, 
if you got four different dates of birth for your grandfather, you can put in all those four different dates of birth, the sources of all those, and indicate which one your analysis says is the most correct. But if your analysis changes in the future, then you can go back and change that. So when you look at that family group sheet, what you want to pay attention to is not the mother and the father. You want to pay attention to the children. The children is where you want to concentrate. And what you want to concentrate is where you have facts, is the source a primary source? If the source is not a primary source, then you need to look for a primary source. And the places on that family group sheet that are blank, that's where your research should be directed. Now, the reason I say you should focus on the children and not the parents is because let's say your grandfather had five brothers and sisters. What's to say that your grandfather is the one that leads back to the parents? It could be any one of his siblings. And any one of these siblings could give you an additional piece of information on their parents. Oftentimes when we run into roadblocks and we can't get any further, it's because we're researching the parents and we haven't thoroughly exhausted the children. So those listeners that are listening in that you've run into a block, that person that you're researching, look at their children. Have you got everything for their children? Have you got their death certificates, their birth certificates, their marriage records, their obituaries, their census records, their military records? Each and every one of those records for each and every one of those children, you should exhaust before you go back to the parents. Again, your family group sheet is the one that guides that research. And so you should have family group sheets for every child and for every parent. And the other thing is that when we do genealogy, we start with ourselves and we go backward into time, one generation to another generation. So first you exhaust yourself and your siblings. Then you go to your parents and your aunts and uncles and exhaust them. Then you go to your grandparents and their siblings and exhaust them, and you go back one generation at a time. You can't skip generations. You know, I've looked at some, you know, family trees, and people are looking at their great-great-grandparents, but they haven't exhausted their grandparents yet, haven't mm-hmm. exhausted their aunts and uncles. And, and there's so many good clues there that they're missing out on. Well, what about those individuals that are at a stage in their research where they are trying to find an enslaved ancestor? So talk about that for for a minute. They can't find them. What should they do? Well, (laughs) (laughs) Oh, there's Bernie's telling you, let's go down the rabbit hole, huh? (laughs) Oh, yeah, yeah. I've spent hours talking on this, you know, but we'll we'll give it a couple minutes. Um, the first thing is that they should not assume their ancestors were enslaved. Mm-hmm. Before the Civil War, there were over 200,000 African Americans that were free before the Civil War in the north, north of the Mason-Dixon line. But even south of the Mason-Dixon line, there were over 250,000 free people of color below the Mason-Dixon line before the Civil War. So you can't assume your ancestors were enslaved. You know, 
I assumed that when I started, and I was able to trace my ancestors back on the census to 1810 as free people on one line. Never had a clue. You know, so that's first step. Second thing is that in order to research prior to the Civil War, you have to thoroughly exhaust everything going back to the Civil War. And many people, unfortunately, are not really ready to do research in the slavery period because basically all they looked at is census records. And if all you looked at is census records, you haven't looked at enough records. You haven't built a strong enough foundation in order to research enslaved people. You have to research your family at least back to 1870, hopefully back to 1865 or 1867, 1868. Know where the family lived. You've exhausted military records, census records, court records, city directories, church records, employment records, cemeteries, funerals, I mean, all kinds of records you need to exhaust. All those records will give you a little picture of the family, a little piece of the picture of the family. Also, you cannot research one individual. You have to research families because when you get into the slavery period, people are going to be listed under just a ordinarily only a first name and not a surname. And so oftentimes they would be listed with a mother and siblings. Sometimes yes, sometimes no. Sometimes with the father, sometimes not. But if you don't know the family structure, who the siblings were and how old those siblings were and what the first names, the given names, and the nicknames were, then you're not going to have enough information to research in the slavery period. So that's the first thing. You have to build that strong foundation. The next thing is you need to study history. We cannot research genealogy without researching. Unfortunately, many people that study genealogy never majored in history, and they hated history when they were in school. But in order to do genealogy, you have to understand the historical context of which our ancestors lived. You need to know U.S. history. You need to know local history. What is the history of that state your ancestors lived in? What's the history of that county where your ancestors lived in? You need to know African-American history. Or if you're Jewish, you need to know Jewish history. If you're Irish, you need to know Irish history. You know, um, you need to know the history of that religion. What religion did they uh, participate in? You know, all those different things about your ancestors as well as the community, you need to be up on. And you need to be up on it during the Reconstruction period after the Civil War. You need to be up on it on the Civil War and what was going on during the Civil War and where was happening in the Civil War, as well as you need to understand the history of slavery. Now, I've read many articles. I've read several books. Um, I've been to many presentations. And I still don't know enough about slavery. This year, I started to read more books about slavery. Um, I was going to put together some stats uh, for you today, but I didn't get an opportunity. I was running around. But there was, there was a, the statistic in one of Ira Berlin's books. Ira Berlin did a book called uh, Many Thousands Gone, you know, about the history of, of slavery. And he did several other ones. But in one of them, he said there were over 200 books written every year just on American slavery. 
as researchers, if we're researching, do we know about those 200 books? Have we read any of those two? I'm talking about just 200 each year. So there's many, many uh, books that uh, scholars have written that we need to be aware of about slavery, about the Civil War, about Reconstruction, and about American history. So that's the other thing. Now, I also mentioned about African Americans sometimes having one surname in 1880 and a different surname in 1870. And that had to do with the census taken, knowing people in the community and the, the ties of some people still living in 1870 on that same plantation in which they were enslaved uh, or living next door or just living down the road a piece. So we have to be aware of that. And sometimes that name will give us clues to research. Now, <clears throat> what I instruct people to do is that when they're trying to identify the last slave owner, after you've discarded the fact that they might have been free before the Civil War, how do you know if they were free before the Civil War? Well, you look on the census schedules of free persons to see if they were there. In uh, any other free records for that locality where your ancestors lived, you need to look at those to see if your ancestors listed. Now, in order to research before the Civil War, you need to research after the Civil War first. For example, if you have an ancestor that you've identified in 1870, have you gotten his obituary? Because his obituary might indicate who his slave owner was. So you get that record after the Civil War, not before the Civil War. Did that person participate in the Civil War? If he did, do you have his military records? Do you have his compiled military uh, service records? Many of those compiled military service records of those Civil War soldiers that were formerly enslaved have the name of their slave owner on them. That's going to enable you to research during the slavery period. Did they have a pension application file? If they had a pension file and they were formerly enslaved, many times the name of that former slave owner, as well as the name of that plantation, is listed in that pension application file. So the question is, do you understand the Civil War? Was the Civil War active in your community where your ancestors lived? Do you know how to research Civil War records? Do you know what Civil War records exist? Do you know what Civil War records have been microfilmed? Which ones have been digitized? Which ones have not been microfilmed or digitized or only in manuscript form? Do you really know how to research the Civil War? You need to look at all those different things. Do you know about all the records for Reconstruction? And there's tons and tons of records on Reconstruction. Oftentimes in our community, all we think about is the Freemans Bureau. That's only one government agency. There's many different government agencies that have records that have to do with Reconstruction that we give you information on your enslaved ancestors. So it's really about doing our homework. One of the problems I've seen with people is they try to research their ancestor before they understand the records, even before they understand what records they need to research because they haven't read genealogy how-to books. They haven't read genealogy reference books. I try to tell people that before you research your ancestor, you need to understand the records first. Once you understand the records, then try to understand which ones have been digitized, which ones have not been digitized. Then you can search for your ancestor. 
then you can answer the question, should I search online or do I have to research on location or do I have to order records or do I have to have records sent to me? All those different things is really about how to do genealogy. So um, one of the problems of why we can't find our ancestors is because of our genealogical skills. We need to improve our genealogical skills as much as possible, as well as we need to increase our knowledge of history. And the more we learn about history and the more we can increase our genealogical skills, the more we're going to be able to find our ancestors. Well, Tony, one of the things you're talking about improving your genealogical skills, but you may have several people that are just self-taught. And self-taught because they've seen the commercials and they feel, oh, that's all I have to do is put in a name and pop my (laughs) ancestor's name come up. Well, what about, you know, the conferences and webinars and even the uh, genealogical societies that individuals should consider joining to help them improve their genealogical skills? Well, um, you really kind of hit a nerve because our African-American genealogical societies, Bernice, are the best kept secret in America. (laughs) (laughs) Because <laughs> people don't know about them Because they don't promote themselves So you got to be in the loop To find out about them you know? But for those people that are listening That are, not, that are African American And that are not aware of it There's what we call Local genealogical societies And that's a group of Well we have them for African Americans There's European Americans There's Jewish genealogical societies There's Irish genealogical societies the genealogical sites for all different kinds of ethnic groups. So what they do is these genealogy groups, they get together of like-minded people that are all interested in genealogy, usually around a common interest, either their ethnic group or their location. Like there's a Chicago Genealogical Society, you know, there's a New York Genealogical Society. So it's either by location or by ethnic group. And these people get together and they network oftentimes on a monthly basis. Sometimes they have a speaker that comes in that talks about a different topic. Uh, Sometimes there's interest groups where people have side interests, so so they get together with their side interests. They often have a newsletter, so the research that their members are doing, publishing in that newsletter, which comes out either monthly or quarterly. Some societies have a scholarly journal where they have uh, in-depth research that is all footnoted with all their sources. Um, so they do all kinds of things to help each other out. So what I would recommend is that people can go online and, well, a good place to search is really uh, Cindy's List. You can go to Cindy's List and you can search on genealogy clubs, genealogy societies, genealogy groups, and you can find a ton of them on Cindy's List. And so it's helpful if you join one in the local community of where you live or you join one where your ancestors live. So even though you might not be able to go to meetings where your ancestors live, you can subscribe to their newsletter or their journal so you can still get information on what's happening in that area of where your ancestors live. Then if you happen to be on location and you're having a meeting, then you can join the meeting and you can meet those members. Now sometimes they're having webinars, they're having Zoom meetings and all kinds of things for, for people to participate. So, yeah, geological sites is a great way 
to learn about genealogy and find other people that have been doing genealogy on a regular basis. You mentioned the genealogy conferences. Some Mm -hmm. of these societies have conferences. There's also the National Genealogical Society that has conferences. The Federation Genealogical Societies, uh, they had conferences. I think they're scheduled to have their very last conference coming up this year. So they have conferences. Uh, different ethnic groups have national conferences. So there are conferences, again, that scattered all throughout the year, primarily in the spring and the fall. Not a lot during the summer and the winter, but primarily the spring and the fall. Um, you can go to a place like, uh, again, Cindy's List has a lot of them listed. You can go to Dick Eastman. Dick Eastman has a newsletter that comes out regularly. He lists uh, conferences all throughout the country. Uh, There's also uh, community colleges have classes in genealogy. I taught genealogy at Chicago State University for 15 years, and it was open to anybody who lived in the community. So uh, there's different classes that exist around. There's webinars. Some of the uh, computer programs have webinars. Some of the societies, the state societies have webinars. There's all kinds of webinars on genealogy topics, uh, again, all throughout the country. Uh, There's many books. There's magazines. There's newsletters. If people want to learn how to do genealogy, there's tremendous sources. There's YouTube. There's a lot of classes and a lot of little snippets you can learn on YouTube. So there's a lot of different ways to learn about how to do genealogy. Not only that, but I want to also mention their institutes. For example, there's the yes. Midwest African American Genealogy Institute, and this year it's going Absolutely. virtual. And so Absolutely. those of you that are interested, you could go to, we call it Maggie, the Maggie Institute website. But there are also genealogical Facebook pages for individuals to yes. join. Yes, absolutely. absolutely. Those Although are wonderful caution, communities. Go ahead. Yes, uh, the institutes are great. Uh, like you said, Magic, that's, that's a, a great one. Um, there's one in Washington, D.C., the National Institute of Geological Research. It just deals with federal records. Uh, there's one in Pennsylvania, and there's a couple of them. An institute is a week-long uh, kind of like conference where you spend the entire day for several days in a row just learning different in-depth methods and sources of doing genealogy. Uh, When you go to a place like Facebook and other places where anybody can comment, I have to caution people on that. It could be good, but then it could be bad as well because sometimes you have the blind leading the blind, and you have people that think they know what they're doing, but they're giving out a lot of bad information and a lot of misinformation. And for beginners, sometimes you don't have the skills to determine if that information you're getting is good or not. So going to a a society or an institute or a conference is a little better for people that that don't have any experience. And once you get that experience, then I think someplace like Facebook is going to be a little more helpful for you. Also, I want to just do something Right now, I see a lot of people online. If any of you would like to ask a question, just press 1, and I'll, I'll recognize you and let you ask a question. Also, there's a call-in number, 516-453-9145, and just press 1, and you can ask a question. So I have a question 
uh, area code 501. You have a question? Uh, yes. Uh, Tony, Bernice, I'm enjoying your show very much. And I would Thank like you. to ask, are you familiar with uh, the Augs? Jenny Augs Group. <laughs> uh, we oh, have yeah. one of the hardest working presidents of Chamber of Tenpenny. And I wonder if you all were familiar with the group of Tamla. Augs is a very good group. They've been around for, what, over 20 years? All right. Uh, what has it been? It's been maybe 30 years, I think. Um, I was almost one of the founders. It just so happened when they were getting started, I, I was like kind of, you know, uh, up to my ears in genealogy, and I had to take a break for a little while. But, no, they have uh, chapters all around the country. I've, I've spoken at many of the, the chapters as well as at the national, and uh, they have a great journal, good newsletter, a lot of good programs, a lot of good members. So, yeah, Augs is a great group. Augs is the Afro-American Historical and Genealogical Society, uh, started in 1977 in uh, Washington, D.C. with James Dent Walker, who was my mentor. Uh, James, <clears throat> James Walker was an archivist at the National Archives for like 30 years and uh, <clears throat> was an expert in military records. Ooh, excuse me. Excuse me one second. Mm. Expert in military records as well as African-American records and records at the National Archives. And uh, he was just a, a wealth of, of information. So, yes, <clears throat> by all means. Are you an officer in all or are you just a member? Oh, he's, he's off the line now he's because gone. we oh, have okay. another caller. Okay. <laughs> the, okay. uh, when all I right. said sure. that, it just lit up. Area code 660, sure. do you have a question or a comment? Yes, I do. I have a question. Go ahead, Ellen. You're, yes. you're live. Okay. Um, I was able to talk to older relatives that were in their uh, 80s and 90s that gave me some verification of a name. And my great-great-great-grandfather changed his last name from from Lee to Moore. Now the family has a surname of Moore, but because I was able to talk with them, I found out that the last name was Lee. As a result of that, I went back and that verbal uh, verification told me that he was sold in slavery in New Orleans started doing some research and found the slave ship that boarded in New Orleans and found the slave manifesto and found a name that I think is him. Um, but I don't know what to do with it from there. What do I do with it from there? Well, I think what you're referring to as the uh, inward intercoastal slave trade, uh, that's not a slave ship that came from Africa. That's one that came from the eastern seaboard. Do you remember what year the record was for? Um, mm, I, I don't write off the top of my head. I That's wish right. I had it in my head. That's right. Did, did you but find I it online? I think, the, I think the ship came from Virginia to New Orleans. Yes, yes, exactly, exactly. Uh, that's called the intercoastal slave trade versus the transatlantic slave trade. Transatlantic slave trade is that trade that came from Africa to the New World. The intercoastal slave trade went from the eastern seaboard from basically the Chesapeake down into the Gulf. Um, okay. What happened was, and I'll try to make this short, <laughs> uh, when the um, uh, soil was depleted through tobacco farming in Virginia and Maryland, they needed new soil. And so what they did was they took the Native American Indians 
out of Alabama, Mississippi, Georgia, and they moved them out into what is now Oklahoma, which at that time was called Indian Territory. Then they went down and got those new land, which was rich farming land, and so they had to have enslaved people in there to, to work those farms, uh, which included Louisiana as well. Uh, and so what they did was uh, uh, enslaved people got transported in two different ways. One is they went in coffles and they walked from Virginia to Mississippi, Alabama, Louisiana, Texas, Arkansas. The other way they traveled was they traveled by boat from the Chesapeake Bay area under Florida and in through the Gulf of Mexico into uh, the port of, of New Orleans, but as well as into the port of, of Mobile, um, and then went up river and then got sold, whatever. Um, problem that you, you run into is that when, pe- when, when people were sold, normally in Virginia and Maryland and in that, that area, uh, they were sold to a small slave trader who went out into the field to the farms and they bought enslaved people. He then went to the large markets into Richmond, and he sold to a large dealer. The large dealer would then sell them down south, which would be sold to a large dealer, you know, in, in Mobile or New Orleans or Vicksburg or whatever. And then that large dealer would sell them to a smaller dealer, and that smaller dealer would then sell them to a particular farm. So your ancestors could have been sold four times just in the process of migrating from Louisiana into into Virginia. That's the problem that you're faced with. The other problem with that is there's not a lot of slave trade records that survived. So um, the other problem is that you don't know, or you probably don't know if your ancestor came by himself or he came with a family. Uh, and you probably can't answer that question, can you? No, I'm here. The the same the can you hear me? The verbal verification that I have with the relatives is said that he said he was sold along with a baby sister and Uh said she was probably about five years old. But when I look at the slave manifesto, of course I don't I I can't tell if it was a little girl or whatever. Um but that's the verbal verification that tells me that according to what they were told he was sold with the little sister, and he eventually ended up from New Orleans into Texas. Right. Uh, now, how, do you know how long he stayed in New Orleans? I do not. I do not know. Okay. And and on that on that slave manifest, he's only listed with a surname. I mean, a first name, right? Well, it does have a last name. In fact, there are two men on the on that slave manifesto with the same last name. Uh, but oh, I didn't okay. find a little girl with that last name. You see, yeah, see that. Well, Tony, I'm going to have to cut this one off okay. because we do have some other people waiting. But I just All want right. to mention to the caller because I also found an ancestor on a slave ship manifest from Richmond, Virginia to New Orleans. And I was able to continue to track her. Now, in New Orleans, you have... You you actually had slave pens. You had people waiting. Some sometimes they already had the traders out there waiting. And there's an archive called the Notorial Archives, which is located in New Orleans, where you may find additional documentation. 
Uh, also, I mean, for me, I was able to find my ancestor and to actually track her in New Orleans and in another place. And she did come with a first and a last name. So you you will have to, of course, do a lot more research, as Tony mentioned. But thank you so much for uh, asking the question. Uh, the next caller is area code 980. Sorry to keep you waiting, uh, but we'll try to get to your question because it's almost time to end the show. So you have a question or a comment? Yes, what I was wanting to know is what do you do about the goings? There are so many of them, and they're like <laughs> intermarrying each other. <laughs> it's oh, so yeah. many of them. <laughs> I'm just like, when I think I found him, he got a brother that lives in Texas, and he got some that lives in Oklahoma. Like, what? How can you? And then it's like the goings, women have like 25 children, so you think that you... <laughs> person is your relative and then you go down south and there's a whole nother family it's just like they say all of them are not kin and i understand that but it seems like they are like i just (laughs) do not want to research them no more because i get mad (laughs) and plus that going you have different spellings you know it can get crazy a crazy name you know uh, well, the, the only thing I, I can say just quickly is that if you have a large family, uh, then uh, you have to make sure you research all of them. And usually that's better. However, you, you, make, you bring up a very interesting point, a very great point, is that everybody with the same surname is not related. And you have to keep that in mind. And so one of your challenges is, is to try to separate those different families that are not related to you. And always keep that in mind. Okay, Tony, we have two two more questions, and that's going to be it. Area code 408, you have a question or a comment? Yes, mine is a comment. Um, Tony didn't address this, but Tony may remember. He interviewed my mother back in 1993, and so what he did was he did a video. And so my recommendation or comment is, is whenever possible, to do a video because now I can archive that for our future generations as well as for our family. So Tony was the one that got me really interested for our family. So that's my comment. And thank you very much. Thank Thank you. you. What what was your mother's name? Okay. Okay. No. What was your mother's name? Her name was Alice Alexander at the time. Oh, yes, yes, out in California. That's correct. Oh, great, great, great. And what's your name? Lamont. I'm the oldest. Lamont. Okay, okay. Oh, thank you very much for calling in. I appreciate it. I loved your mother. We had a great time. That was was what? We did four interviews in two days with her. Yeah, great. That's correct. (laughs) (laughs) And that's a wonderful legacy to have, that, that interview. So that's yeah, a really that's right. good good tip. Yes, absolutely. So we have one more caller, and that's area code eight three one. You have a question or a comment? Uh, yes, I did. It had to do with adoption uh, between uh, nineteen ten and nineteen twenty. I believe my uh, father was adopted, uh, and but I can't find any any records. Uh, any advice? Why do you think he was adopted? 
Oh, it's a long family, long story. Uh, okay, basically okay. He, well, I, I, uh, I, we only have a little bit of time. I'll give you two things right quick. One is that it could be a formal adoption or it could be an informal adoption. If it's an informal adoption and the family just brought them in, there won't be any official records. If it was a formal adoption, then there could be a record, but then it depends on if the state is a closed adoption state or an open adoption state. The other it's thing Illinois. is the fact it's in Illinois. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Well, um, the other thing I was going to say is with adoption, one of the one of the uh, proven records of using DNA successfully is with adoptee, uh, uh, adoptees trying to find their birth parents. Have you looked into DNA? Uh, I'm I'm trying to do that. Unfortunately, all I have, uh, he didn't have any relatives, and uh, you know, it's just my brother and sister are the only uh, remaining uh, family members. Right. Well, what I would suggest is that you start reading some books and articles on using DNA for adaptive research and and exhaust all those resources, and hopefully it will give you uh, some things. Also, there's some, some books just on doing adaptive research. So you need to get away from genealogy and look for those books that have to do with adoptees trying to find their birth parents. So those are two aspects. Right. Real quickly, I understand that the uh, the mother's DNA and the father's DNA – are different, but the siblings carry yes. both. And so, well, if I can find, partially, and, and there's a partially. way to figure out which DNA I'm, I'm looking. It is, but it's complicated. That's why you have to start reading some books on it. Yes. Okay. Uh, right. okay. And you have autosomal DNA, and you have the the MT DNA, and you have the Y. So you have three different tests that you would consider uh, taking to at least try to find relatives that perhaps you don't know that may be connecting to your father, your father's yeah. line. And, and the autosomal DNA that you inherit is random. So one brother could inherit different DNA than his mm-hmm. other brother, some the same and some different. That's why you need to Oh, really? Oh, I didn't know that. Yes. Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. That's why I said you need to do some, some book reading first. You know, once you do some book reading, you can learn about all those nuances. Very good. Thank you, Merce, Tony. Oh, you're welcome. Okay. Okay, Tony, I'm not going to bring anybody else on, and I just want to thank you so much <laughs> for at least sure. letting me go over <laughs> over sure, time no so that no you problem. could give the information that would help people determine why they can't find their ancestors. Do you have any closing remarks before we close out tonight? Well, the closing remark I would say is people need to get to their relatives and, like the gentleman said, interview them on videotape and interview them until they are blue in the face. My book, Black Roots, has three pages of questions, and so uh, there's also questions you can find online. And don't wait for your ancestors to leave us and many of them are leaving us, particularly now, so it's very, very important that we get to them and start interviewing them. It's my parting thought. Wonderful parting thoughts. And for those of you who don't know, I do have a book out called Tracing Their Steps, a memoir, Bernice Alexander Bennett. So check out my book on Amazon. And I want everybody to remember, your ancestors did leave footsteps. So remember to follow those clues, oral history, family records, 
Research at the National Archives and Beyond. Thank you so much for tuning in tonight, and I look forward to you joining me tomorrow. Take care. Thank you, Tony. Thanks, Bernice. Love it.